Why, hello there. I think you better pull up a chair. I've been um, working on these nuclear... Here's what I think. I think that it was hiding in plain sight. Okay, so I think that in order to have um, the depleted uranium to be able to use those in smart meters, they needed to have a reason for having nuclear fusion places, right, for nuclear... Um, nuclear energy. And there's been a big, big, big resurgence in people saying, well, nuclear wasn't that bad. I mean, just a couple of little accidents. So there's been a huge resurgence in this nuclear thing. Why? Well, I don't know, to keep the plutonium coming? I don't really know right now. But anyway, so um, there's there has to be a reason why some people are also more impacted by some of these things coming at us, right? And because there is so much in this file as far as these um, nuclear places, I mean, it's just it's something else. Um, so what I'm going to be doing today, I think, you know, I mentioned this one doctor, Streichler, connected with um, uh, Dr. Cleckley. And, um, you know, at the time when I opened the file on him, I thought, well, what the heck were those two doing coming up with supplements, right? So I popped up with the file again, and, <laughs> well, here's what I think's going on. You, we've been fed this corn-based diet, right? Well, there's implications to that, and those implications have to do with um, niacin. Niacin basically is um, B3, okay? And I'm starting to make this sound confusing. I don't want to. So let me, let me start over here, okay? Today, because next show... I have a show about what these nuclear reactors are, okay, to explain why there's this push for more of them now, right? Because now it's like, well, let bygones be bygones. Things weren't so bad. Not that many people were killed. Um, so what I'd like to talk to you today is leading up to all of this, you know, the tests. There's been a lot of tests, significant tests taking place with radiation. And um, so... First, and I've got to really isolate my thoughts here so I keep it all straight, okay? They started doing tests in the Marshall Islands, okay? And the two groups of people that I have found that did the most aggressive tests, because if you remember, I was talking about Iraq and the fallout from there, right? Well, they did two, a few tests on purpose, okay? That would be the Marshall Islands, um, what went on in Russia, and Hawaii, okay? And um, Hawaii, believe it or not, is the ground zero for all of this toxic GMO food stuff. So, yeah, they're really blowing up Hawaii. So today, I thought, well, let me pull out of that and define for you what are some of these tests that have been going on with nuclear, okay? Because when they say that Americans have been getting um, radiation, well, they're not joking, right? Because it appears to me, I mean, they're even radiating our food, okay? So buckle up, let's take a look here, okay? So, and also in the middle of this, because I wanted to talk about it for a long time, how the U.S. government stole Hawaii, and now it's just a toxic wasteland. Um, so, because Hawaii ties into this whole GMO thing, just nestled over there in paradise, all this horrific stuff going on. So anyway, so, the nuclear weapon tests of the United States were performed from 1945 to 1992 as part of the nuclear arms race. 
the United States conducted around 1,054 nuclear tests by official count. See, this is where it gets dicey, right? Official count, right? We, we don't know what they've been doing in all these other countries, so we'll just leave that to the side, okay? Including 200, and, and I don't mean to sound selfish, we're just going to talk about the U.S. tests, because I do believe these tests have been going on, like, all over the place. <laughs> but we'll just focus right now on where... They know we're, this is the home of eugenics is the United States, okay? So let, let's, let's acknowledge that fact first, right? I'm not just trying to hog up the thing because I happen to be from the United States. This is where the home of eugenics is. So, um, so 1,054 nuclear tests by official count, including 216 atmospheric, underwater, and space tests. Most of the tests took place at the Nevada test site, and the Pacific Proving Grounds in the Marshall Islands and off Cridmar Island in the Pacific, plus three in the Atlantic Ocean. Ten other tests took place at various locations in the United States, including Alaska, Nevada, Colorado, Mississippi, and New Mexico. Okay. Um, And I'll be giving you some names. Um, there's specific places in the Marshall Islands that you'll want to look for, okay? Um, so, yeah, basically the Marshall Islands, the U.S. military, literally, these were poor indigenous people. They literally, I mean, literally pulled up on their big boats and said, hey, get off the island for God's work and started throwing around atomic bombs, okay? And radiation, radiation blowing down in the sky on these people, okay? So, and for some strange reason, all these people ended up living in Oklahoma. Now, I haven't gotten to that part yet because that was too odd of a detail when I had. <laughs> so, why did these, they call them Marshallese. Um, but anyway, so, um, and here's, you know, we're getting fed this corn-based diet, okay? So, there's this disease called pellagra. P-L-L-A-G-R-A, -L -L okay? Pellegra plays a pivotal role in the development of the modern concept of nutritional deficiency disease and the recognition of neurologic disorders of malnutrition. So they had this as late as 1912 to 1916. They had this Pellegra Commission, okay? And who do I find in this Pellegra deal but... Our good old friend, Hervé Cleckley, Mr. Psychopath, right? Mr. Psychopath Researcher. And I updated on my website um, the lack of studies in the area of psychopaths. Just go to psychopathinyourlife.com. It's on the main page. And there I have Cleckley, who connects with Robert Hare, the now leading expert on psychopaths, both psychopaths themselves, of course. But anyway, so, um, so yeah, and so... When I was looking into this stuff, I kept thinking, what is the common link? What would make people get sicker, like aerotoxicity, um, radiation? What, what makes some people sicker than other people, right? And I kept having that nagging feeling, what, what were him and Cleckley doing with nutrition, right? <laughs> because also, they also connect to K-rations and things they were feeding the military, right? See, I don't think this thing could have gone on, been going on for longer than 100 years, maybe 150. And there's a possibility it could be a parallel thing, right? Like my, my family could have been here living a long life, and then these people could have taken over somewhere, right? 
when they took over maybe the banking system in the early 1900s. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not this big elaborate trick that we're looking for, right? Um, so anyhow, so, um, so he and Cleckley first described the, syndro the syndrome of ni niacin deficiency without the gastronomical and dermal of classical pellagra. Okay, so they were all worried about the pellagra stuff, okay? And um, then I ran into, you know, I mentioned before that I was doing, um, looking into what they're finding in cancer patients because they're giving them radiation, right? And they recommend niacin supplements reduces cancer occurrence. So then I'm thinking, okay, now we're, now we're going somewhere here, right? And what are the effects of niacin deficiency? Because here's what I believe, okay? I believe that the high corn diet we're being fed is creating a niacin deficiency. Simple as that, okay? Even the animals are being fed all this corn. So let me explain why I'm making that kind of a statement. Because it's usually always a simple thing, right? This is not the complex answer people are possibly looking for. What are the effects of niacin deficiency? Studies indicate that niacin deficiency delays DNA repair. And remember, this radiation is zapping our DNA and splitting our atoms, which I believe is what is giving us cancer, right? Promotes accumulation of DNA, DNA strand breaks, chromosomal translocations, terrible erosion typical of aging, and promotes cancer. Rat model studies indicate that most of these aspects of genomic instability are all minimized by the recommended levels of niacin. And I also want you to think about two things. They have tests for niacin, right? But we have to consider a couple things. The people doing the tests are these people, right? So is testing for niacin accurate to begin with, right? How do people know if they have niacin deficiencies, right? Okay. Um, because I keep thinking, is niacin why some people get more impact by radiation? And why are they talking about niacin with cancer patients getting radiation, right? Okay, so what they did, and they described, and this is, um, it's cider stricker, S-Y-D-E-N-S-T-R-I-C-K-E-R. And cider stricker relates to Pearl Buck. I mean, these people are, it's, like, I have that further down here. But anyway, so these two, Strider Stricker and Cleckley, they described, so they went into these mental words and found these people, okay? And they found profound stupor or stupor alternating with delirium and variable reflex changes and the presenting phenomena. Quite regularly, there is evidence of underfeeding, though different signs of are rare and confined to occasional instances of glaucosis. Treatment of this high mortality group of patients with nicotinic acid, which is um, niacin, was at first quite empirical and begun because one such person had a red tongue. In, I don't know why they would say that, but in this condition, as is the acute psychosis already described, the results of the administration of nicotine acid have been remarkably good. So they said they stumbled upon this, of course. <laughs> in several instances, was treated first with thiamine with no response, but showed prompt and often impressive improvement with niacin therapy. Strickender's group 
described a variety of neurological and psychiatric symptoms associated with niacin deficiency. And you'll notice a lot of these symptoms of niacin deficiency are also symptoms of radiation poisoning. <laughs> Although these symptoms have been related to central chlamydosis of neurons in various areas, the exact contribution of niacin deficiency is unclear because of the coexistence of multiple nutritional deficiencies. As Stryker noted, more than one factor might be concerned in the production of a typical deficiency syndrome. Since the production of a specific deficiency syndrome is quite diff difficult with the deprivation of a single vitamin in normal human beings. The work of Strider, Stricker, and Cleckley has been interpreted as advocating uncontrolled administration of niacin to patients with a variety of psychiatric disorders. Their studies in malnutrition have been cited to justify megadose therapy for schizophrenia, a treatment without validated efficacy. Snyder Stricker practiced in an environment with an extremely high incident of pellagram. So he, in this place where he worked, this nut word, they had all this pellagram, a disease that was rampant in mental institutions. He specifically asserted that it would be ridiculous to infer that all stuporous or psychiatric conditions are manifestations of pellagram. And further, when when definite niacin deficiency existed, replacement therapy might fail because of neuronal destruction. See, this what they're saying here is he's he's kind of admitting early on, right? That um, well, he's saying it's ridiculous that they all manifest from that. Well, maybe ridiculous, maybe not, right? <laughs> I mean, let's not get that. Let's not start throwing the water out here. <clears throat> um, so. So from their experience with psychotic, delirious, and stuporous patients, they concluded that a trial of narcotenic acid might be worthwhile. These investigations were confounded by the effects of niacin acid that may improve mental symptoms such as deliria and dementia. Strykenstein, however, understood the complexity of niacin met metabolism and its synergism with other vitamins, tryptophan, protein intake, and general nutritional set. So what I'm laying the groundwork is these people seem to have a basic understanding of nutrition at this point in time, right? When these two are uh, playing around with this stuff. And how have we progressed since then to understand this stuff? Well, a lot of things people just do not understand. Information is out there. Okay, here's the thing. I'll read from this piece. In recent years, it has become increasingly clear that diet plays a starring role in preventing and treating certain chronic diseases. And physicians are often on the front lines of counseling patients about how their diets and other lifestyle habits can affect their health and weight, a reality that has gained added importance given the obesity epidemic. And yet it turns out that only 29% of U.S. medical schools offer medical students the recommended 25 hours of nutritional education, according to a 2015 report in the Journal of Biomedical Education. 
On the average, U.S. medical schools offer only 19.6 hours of nutritional education across four years of medical school, according to a 2010 report in Academic Medicine. In a 2016 study, and remember, we're just right now in 2023. <laughs> People always want to act like this stuff happened so long ago. In a 2016 study, researchers at Case Western Reserve University examined data from 25 family medicine, internal medicine, and OBGYN medical residency programs throughout Ohio. What they found is that these programs average 2.8 hours of instruction on obesity, nutrition, and physical activity counseling. And only 42% of them taught the residents techniques for how to perform health behavior counseling. Given this, it's not exactly shocking that many doctors would receive a failing grade on nutritional know-how. A 2016 study in the International Journal of Adolescent Medicine and Health assessed the basic nutritional knowledge of fourth-year medical osteopathic school graduates entering a pediatric residency program and found that on average the incoming interns answered only 52% of the 18 questions correctly. Why has nutrition been given this short shrift in medical schools? There are several reasons, especially lack of funding and a shortage of trained faculty to provide high quality nutritional instruction. <laughs> and a focus on treating rather than preventing diseases. The assumption is that doctors will refer patients to dietitians. Plus, the medical school cur curriculum is crowded, and it's hard to make room for new priorities, says David Katz. <laughs> it's not that physicians don't want to provide nutritional advice. Many primary care physicians believe that providing nutritional counseling is part of their responsibility yet there continues to be a sizable gap between these good intentions and the proportion of patients who receive dietary advice from their doctors or who are referred to dietitians, according to 2010 research. The primary barrier, barriers, lack of time and compensation, followed by insufficient knowledge and resources. Diet and lifestyle counseling tend to be labor-intensive, Kat says, and the brief clinical visits that now prevail don't really allow for that. Well, now that I'm just telling you a barrel of good news, let me, let me explain how we got some of these um, problems that are leading us towards this niacin deficiency, because you have to kind of look at it all, right? We're, we're a nation of people with severe inflammation problems beyond the <laughs> psychological issues. Okay. All kinds of ways, right? And I didn't know any of these things, okay, because I, the whole thing, this whole thing with the United States is nothing but a big marketing plan, okay? It's really as simple as that. They just convince us that, you know, we're in good hands with them. They convince us they're really on top of these things. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about one of the little horrors here. Seed oils like canola and sunflower oil have long been touted as heart-healthy alternatives to saturated fats like butter. Butter, butter. They're also a common ingredient in nut butters and mayo. Maybe you've been cooking with these oils, thinking you're doing your body a favor. If so, we need to talk. 
what are industrial seed oils? What happened was they had these things they wanted to do with them, right? So they figured out a way to sell them to us, okay? Industrial seed oil or vegetable oil are products like soybean, corn, safflower, canola, and cottonseed oils. You'll often see these on labels for natural snacks and prepackaged foods. But there's nothing natural about the way these oils are made. How are seed oils made, you ask? Seed oils are made by gathering the seeds from plants like corn. The reason I'm talking about seed oils is because I'll still be very focused on corn here, okay? <laughs> the American diet. Seed oils are made by gathering the seeds from plants like corn, sunflowers, and soybeans, then superheating them until their fatty acids oxidize in a process called hydrogenation. The resulting oils are then processed with a petroleum-based solvent and smothered in a chemical cocktail to mask their awful color and smell. Color and smell, okay. <laughs> okay, so the, our friends at the FDA, FDA, okay. I had no idea this was so bad, okay, <laughs> no idea. The FDA has approved a variety of foods for eradication eradication in the United States, including beef and pork, crustaceans, lobster, shrimp, and crab, fresh fruits and vegetables, lettuce and spinach, poultry, seeds for sprouting, like alfalfa sprouts, shell eggs, shellfish, like oysters, clams, stuff like that, spices and seasoning. And then, how will I know if my food has been irradiated? Well, if you're shopping in the United States, <laughs> pretty good pretty good indicator right there. And a lot of these things, interestingly enough, are not allowed for export. Well, no, they're allowed to be export, but nobody wants them in Europe. But they get, they get sent off to places like Africa and stuff, the U.S. ones. And the interesting thing is, in some of these cases, the U.S. things are also toxic. And the, the U, U, Europe is on to us, right? So they banned a lot of these things in their country. And so, but then these U.S. companies actually take out the banned things to sell, to still sell those products to Europe, okay? But they keep the banned things in things they sell to the United States and other third world countries. See how this works? Okay, and then I found a little thing from the Food and Drug Administration. The Food and Drug Administration announced last week that it will allow, and I, I'm sorry, I forgot the date here, but it, it was just real recently, okay? The, the, the Food and Drug, and in the last five or so years, the Food and Drug Administration announced last week that it will allow food producers to eradicate, irradi excuse me, irradiate spinach and iceberg lettuce to extend shelf life and limit the growth of foodborne pathogens such as salmonella and E. coli. Irradiation, excuse me, that word. Irradiation, irradiation is safe and effective, the FDA says. But in not addressing the root problem, so yeah, so they say that well, basically what they're doing is their, their solution instead of addressing the root problem in the food in this country is they just, they just elect to do things like radiate, okay? Because it says, um, Okay, 
irradiation is safe and effective, the FDA says. But in not addressing the root problem, a centralized food processing and distribution system riddled with inherent flaws that allow for the mass distribution of contaminated food, irradiation is as effective as using a hammer to drive in a screw. There are better tools. And safe really only applies to consumers, not the workers tasked with irradiating the vegetables. At best, irradiation is a band-aid solution to keep a broken system hobbling along. So who are these people at the FDA? And why is the FDA funded by the companies it regulates? See, this is the thing about that lost all this debate over this particular vaccine. <laughs> all those geniuses on social media are still arguing over, well, I, I called this one right, that vaccine was terrible, but it's still good for old people. Um, everybody seems to leave off the key point here that it's all crooked, okay? The FDA is funded by the companies it regulates, okay? Nearly half of the agency's budget now comes from user fees paid by companies seeking approval for medical devices or drugs. So you want to eradicate your lettuce to get a light? Just pay us some money. We'll take care of it for you, buddy. We'll take care of it. Is this place just a mob or right? Okay, so let's talk about their latest thing about GMOs, which I think is another way that'll ratchet down the niacin, right? and make us more susceptible to radiation. So, um, and the reason I'm morphing into this is because um, the GMOs are being all grown in Hawaii, which the US stole. <laughs> I have it in here somehow, so. A genetically modified organism is any organism whose genetic material has been altered using genetic engineering techniques. The exact definition of a genetically modified organism and what constitutes it. One negative thing about genetically modified organisms is that it does not have an antibiotic feature which makes the person consuming it to be prone to viral bacteria or diseases in general. So GMO thing, the negative impact, does not have an antibiotic feature, which makes the person consuming it to be prone to viral, bacteria, or disease in general. GMOs are perhaps most visible in the, in the produce section. The first genetically engineered plants to be produced for human consumption were introduced in the mid-1990s. GMOs have been used in agriculture for more than 30 years. The first tests of GMOs took place in the 80s, and the first FDA-approved GMO drug was for insulin. Interestingly enough, right? So, all of this stuff, all of this stuff boils down to niacin, right? Now they're talking about niacin being important to take if you have cancer, if you've been getting radiation treatment. So why is that? Niacin is a B vitamin that's made and used by your body to turn food into energy. It helps keep your nervous system, digestive system, and skin healthy. Niacin, or vitamin B3, is often part of a daily multivitamin. Most people get enough from food, they say. Foods rich in niacin include yeast, 
milk, meat, tortillas, and cereal grains. See, this is where, this is where I want you to really start thinking here, okay? Hold on a second. Hey, Rocco, come here. Come here. I gotta start, stop it before I get started. Okay, so, um, they're, if they're lowering our, my theory is they're lowering our niacin levels, okay? Because niacin, niacin deficient people are more susceptible to radiation, okay? That's my theory here, okay? Um, because they're big into this niacin stuff, right? But niacin, niacin causes that pellagra, that disease, happens from corn. But see, here again, they're talking about it's part of the daily multivitamins, okay? And even in tortillas, but tortillas are made of corn. And this, see what I'm saying here? So anyway, so, um, and they're using niacin for conditions like high cholesterol. Prescription niacin is used to increase high dis density HDLs, the good cholesterol. Niacin deficiency, which is called pellagra, which started this whole thing. Pellagra is what they found in these mental wards, okay? Niacin and a related nutrient called niacinamin are used to treat or prevent niacin deficiency. And they also say that niacin deficiency or pellagra isn't common in the United States. Well, how do we know it's not common if these are the people doing the test? See where I'm getting here? Niacin de deficiency has been linked to birth defects. A study in mice suggested that niacin supplementation during gestation period prevented birth defects. Research is needed to prove a similar benefit in humans. A lot to do with this niacin business, right? And now what they're saying, which is interesting about these effects of niacin, they say prescription niacin, they actually have a level of prescription niacin for people with high cholesterol who aren't able to take statins. Um, don't take it if you're pregnant. When taken orally, niacin ap appears to be safe. High doses of niacin available via prescription can cause severe skin flushing combined with dizziness rapid heartbeat, itching, nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, gout, liver damage, and diabetes. Serious side effects are more likely if you take this much, seek medical attention. If you have liver, liver disease, low blood pressure, don't take large amounts. Taking niacin may also worsen allergies, gallbladder disease, or symptoms of cert certain thyroid disorders. If you have diabetes, niacin can interfere with blood glucose control. Use niacin with caution if you have the complex form of arthritis gout. Niacin can cause an excess of uric acid on the blood, putting you at risk of gout. Well, I don't know. Remember, anything you take is from these people who doesn't appear to me have had a lot of education, right? Okay. Because niacin has a lot of interactions. I mean just for something so simple, soul of the shelf, right? Interactions, possible interactions include with alcohol. Taking niacin with alcohol might increase the risk of liver damage and worsen niacin side effects, such as flushing and itching. So there's this, other, I don't know what that drug is, anticoagulant and everybody here is on anticoagulant 
and antiplatelet drugs, herbs, and supplements. These types of drugs, herbs, and supplements include reduced blood clotting. Taking niacin with them might increase your risk of bleeding. Blood pressure drugs, herbs, and supplements. Niacin might have an additive effect when you take blood pressure drugs, herbs, or supplements. This could increase your risk of low blood pressure. Chromium. Taking niacin with chromium might lower your blood sugar if you have diabetes. Closely monitor your blood sugar. Diabetic drugs if you have diabetes. Niacin can interfere with blood glucose control. Hepatoxic drugs, herbs, and supplements. These drugs, herbs, and supplements like niacin cause liver damage. Statins research indicates that taking niacin, statins are what I think about oh, most of the U.S. population or a very high percentage are on statins. They give everybody here statins. Statins for your blood pressure, statins for your um, cholesterol control, everybody's on statins. Research indicates that taking niacin with these cholesterol medications offers little additional benefit when compared with statins alone. Yeah, because they want to sell them. Zinc. Taking zinc with niacin might worsen niacin side effects, such as flushing and itching. A lot to tie into this niacin thing, right? So how have, they, how have they been figuring some of this stuff out, right? Because remember, we have the war going on, right? How were they gearing up for the war? Well, possibly they conducted this thing called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment, also known as the Minnesota Self, no, Minnesota Semi-Starvation Experiment, also known as the Minnesota Starvation Recovery Experiment and the starvation study was a clinical study performed at the University of Minnesota between November 19, 1944 and December 1945. The investigation was designed to determine, to determine the psychological effects of severe and prolonged dietary restrictions and the effectiveness of dietary rehabilitation strategies. The purpose of the study was twofold. First, to produce a definitive treatise on the physical and psychological effects of prolonged famine, like semi-starvation, on healthy men, as well as subsequent effectiveness of dietary re rehabilitation from this condition. And second, to use the scientific results produced to guide the allied relief assistance to famine victims in Europe and Asia at the end of World War II. See how this all plays in together? Huh? No, no, Rock, not, not. He's, he's acting like he's gonna, I can't have him jump up here and like have flying my cords loose. Okay, so, let me see if I can get my cords loose. Okay, why don't you go take a seat, buddy? Go on, lay down. He thinks that, um, I have to be very careful with him. Oh, I'm sorry, I just, put that cord on the microphone so I made a loud noise. I just listened to that um, Santa and um, Satan hat show. <laughs> I try to keep my hands away from the microphone and um, during that show you'll notice that I just had horrible noise from the microphone. Well I had a friend listen to it because it was so bad but that was a reaction from it. I just wasn't feeling well that day and so I kept touching that microphone so sorry if I just touch it again. So yeah so leading up to the war they're deciding about rations and, you know, that Stricker guy and uh, Cleckley were, were deciding what rations to give soldiers, okay? So this is how 
how this stuff all works together. Let me try to get him out here. Please, please. No, go on. Okay, so let me keep going and see if I can page him off. Go on, please, please stop. I'm sitting right in a position where it would be perfect for him to try to jump up here and disconnect my cord. I don't run things around here if you haven't noticed. Okay, so they're doing this starvation study, November 1944, okay? And it was, it was recognized early in 1944 that millions of people were in grave danger of mass famine as a result of the conflict and information was needed regarding the effects of semi-starvation and the impact of various rehabilitation strategies if post-war efforts were to be effective. A study was developed in coordination with the Civil Public Service, CPS, which was around from 1941 to 1947. This was a study of conscientious objectors. What they did, some people were offered to get tested on versus not having to go into battle. Quite a trade-off, huh? Okay, um, now I got a cat coming up behind me. Hey, hey, okay, um, so this study, um, uh, in starving people, civilian public service, service, and the selective service program, which is our government, used 36 men selected from a pool of over 200 CPS volunteers. Well, they say volunteers, but you know what I mean. They, they get volunteers. Like, for example, in some of these studies that they were doing in prison populations with black males primarily, they would say things like, hey, yo, come and do this little study here. We'll, we'll cut you a slack on your time. Yeah, this is how they get them to do the studies. So, Okay, um, the study was divided into four phases, a 12-week baseline control phase, a 24-week starvation phase, causing each participant to lose an average of 25% of his pre-starvation body weight, and two recovery phases in which various rehabilitative diets were tried. The first rehabilitative stage was restricted by eating 2,000 to 3,000 calories a day. The second rehab phase was unrestricted, letting the subjects eat as much as they would like. Preliminary pamphlets containing key results from the Minnesota starvation experiment were used by aid workers in Europe and Asia in the months after World War II. So they put out pamphlets of this experiment saying, oh, this was the result, and this is how we did it. In 1950, Ansel Keys and colleagues published the results in two volumes, 1,385 pages entitled The Biology of Human Starvation. This study was independent of the much broader Warsaw Ghetto Hunger Study performed in 1942 in the Warsaw Ghetto by 28 doctors of the Jewish Hospital in Warsaw. Their results were published in 1946. Yeah, it looks like they were getting up to speed on what starving people look like now, weren't they? And here's what I'd flagged about 
the starvation thing. Physiologist Ansel Keys was the lead investigator of the Minnesota starvation experiment. He was directly responsible for the x-ray analysis and administrative work and the general supervision of the activities in the Laboratory of Physiological Hygiene, which he founded at the University of Minnesota in 1940 after leaving physicians at Harvard's Fatigue Laboratory and the Mayo Clinic. Started in 1941, he served as a special assistant to the U.S. Secretary of War and worked with the Army to develop rations for troops in combat, the K-Ration, because his name was Keys, K-E-Y-S. That's why they called him K-Rations. We learned something new today, right? Keys was director for the Laboratory of Physiological Hygiene for 26 years, retired in 1972, he died in 2004 at the age of 100. Well, um, let me see. We're going to talk about these other people. Well, there's quite a few of them here. Um, so, yeah, these were the principal people. And they're just, a, once you understand the key words, there is just a lot of information out there. Okay, recruitment of volunteers. Let's take a look at that. This was, we're talking still about the Michigan starvation deal. So, in cooperation with the CPS and Selective Services, um, selected from the ranks of conscientious objectors who had been, so um, Ansel Keys obtained approval from the War Department to select participants from the CPS. Availability of a sufficient number of healthy volunteers willing to subject themselves to the year-long invasion of privacy, nutritional deprivation, and physical and mental hardships was, essential, was essential for the successful execution of the experiment. In early 1944, a recruitment brochure was drafted and distributed. It's all about the marketing, right? And distributed within the network of CPS work camps throughout the United States. Over 400 men volunteered to participate. Over 400 men volunteered to participate in the study as an alternative to military service. Of these, about a hundred were selected for examination. Yeah, so it's it's something else, um, and I'm going to get past that because there's no reason to dawdle along on all of that. But it was it was a 12 month clinical period. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, it's, a uh, pretty cruel. And what I'm going to do right here, let me see how their time doing. I'm going to go ahead and close this off because I have Mr. Rocco standing here and making me crazy. And I need to get into this, um, thing about Hawaii next, how the U.S. stole Hawaii. And I guess they weren't very grateful for stealing it because in that part of the world, they just did a lot of destruction and it's still going on right now. So let me close this off right now. I will take care of him and I'll be back on the other side with Hawaii. The history of Hawaii begins way back when the Polynesians first landed sometime around 1150. For the next 500 years or so, the islands remained isolated until British explorer Captain James Cook accidentally stumbled on them in 1778. 
At the time, Hawaii was not one big happy family. It had multiple chieftains spread across all the island. A very enterprising local from Hawaii Island by the name of Kamehameha took advantage of the European arrival to learn everything he could about their weapons and their tactics. Kamehameha took on the various chieftains and by 1810 had emerged as the sole sovereign of a unified Hawaiian islands. Upon his death in 1819, the throne passed to his son, Kamehameha II, who died of measles just five years later. Sugar became a major export from Hawaii soon after Cook's arrival. By the mid-1800s, more and more American planters and missionaries had settled in Hawaii to partake in the sugar bonanza and to spread the gospel. As more Americans came, U.S. interests in the islands multiplied. By the reign of Kamehameha III, American settlers were demanding more say in kingdom politics. When King Kamehameha V died in 1873, without leaving a named successor, the legislature elected Lunalilo king. He was a highly popular king and had big plans for the Aloha state but his reign was short-lived. When Lunalilo died in 1874, the legislature chose David Kalakaua to succeed him. Kalakaua strengthened ties with the U.S. by signing a treaty of reciprocity and selling Pearl Harbor to the Americans. He also encouraged the immigration of contract sugar workers to the islands, which further transformed the Hawaiian economy and culture. While Kalakaua dreamed of reinvigorating Hawaiian culture and creating a pan-Polynesian confederation, he ultimately reigned over the weakening of the Hawaiian monarchy. In 1887, he was pressured to sign a new constitution, nicknamed the Bayonet Constitution, because of the duress under which it was signed. It effectively made the monarchy little more than a figurehead position. When Kalakaua died in 1891, his sister Liliokalani ascended the throne. Liliokalani was formidable, but the decline of the monarchy was irredeemable. She attempted to restore the power of the monarchy, but a pro-American elements under the leadership of Sanford Dole overthrew her on January 17, 1893. The coup d'etat established the Republic of Hawaii, but the ultimate goal was the annexation of the Hawaiian Islands to the United States which was temporarily blocked by President Grover Cleveland. Attempts were made to restore the monarchy and oppose annexation, but with the outbreak of the Spanish-American War, President McKinley and the United States were determined to annex Hawaii, which was finally accomplished by a joint resolution of Congress that McKinley signed on July 7, 1898. Living out the remainder of her life as a private citizen, Lilio Kalani died at her residence, Washington Palace in Honolulu, on November 11, 1917. Hawaii would become a territory in 1900, and finally the 50th State of the Union in 1959. In 1993, the United States Congress adopted a resolution that acknowledged that the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii occurred with the active participation of agents and citizens of the United States. And now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Well, that tells us a little bit about Hawaii. Now let's take a look at what they're doing there. Okay. Okay, let me see here. Um, okay, that gets us caught up with the history, which is good. Um, do you know the ukulele came from Hawaii? Um, but it really isn't. It's one of those things that goes in popular culture. And I think that um, somebody invented it. Um, but anyway, so some questions and answers here. Did America take Hawaii by force? On January 16, 1893, United States troops invaded the Hawaiian kingdom without just cause, which led to a conditional surrender by the Hawaiian kingdom's executive monarch, Her Majesty Queen Lilaokalala. 
the following day. Does the U.S. consider Hawaii a country? Hawaii was a territory of the United States in 1945. It is no surprise that the United Nations in 1946 listed Hawaii, listed Hawaii as a non-self-governing territory under the administration of the United States. Who owned Hawaii before the United States? Hawaii was a kingdom until 1893 and became a republic in 1894. It then ceded itself to the United States in 1898 and became a state in 1959. So, yeah, they passed a whole bunch of, um, actually, Britain and first had Hawaii. Um, Great Britain issued a formal joint declaration with France on November 28, 1843, guaranteeing Hawaiian independence. The United States pursued an independent policy with regards to Hawaii in a treaty dated or signed November 23, 1826. The United States formally recognized Hawaiian independence. So, um, the planners believed a coup in annexation by the United States would remove the threat of a huge tariff on their sugar production. The administration of President Benjamin Harrison encouraged the takeover and dispatched sailors from the USS Boston to the islands to surround the royal palace. Who owned Hawaii? Well, I think we, I think we figured enough of that stuff. Okay, so please stop, Mark. We're having a little stare down here. The last thing I can do is get up right now and give a biscuit. This is how this thing deal gets started. Okay. Um, so, um, at the, now I'm going to get into this GMO stuff. Okay. Um, as the cultivation and use of genetically, genetically modified crops, also known as GMOs, continues to generate debate on the U.S. mainland, the controversy has spilled over to Hawaii. This is where many of the GMO seeds planted around the world are tested on sprawling research farms. So, um, yeah, basically, and there's a lot that I would encourage you to go take a look at because these companies have tested GMO plants in Hawaii for 18 years, but opposition has surfaced and then basically a lot of this opposition, hold on a second, Rocco, hey, come on, come on, let's go, come on, let's go, come on, let's go, lay down, please. They go through this change of the guard about this time. He's upset because the cat has his bed. Gee, don't you know the world is falling apart? <laughs> now settle down. Settle down. Sorry, a lot of times to fix a situation, I, I go give biscuits, and that, that's not a good good remedy. Okay. So, and getting back to how all this lovely stuff got started, um, and this is a person... Um, Syngenta, S-Y-N-G-E-N-T-A in Hawaii. Um, 
this is corn of controversy, okay? And I've been talking before about that corn business, Pellegra, Pellegra from corn, okay? Corn that's been genetically modified to exhibit a particular trait, such as resistance to pests. As the cultivation and use of GMO crops continues to generate debate on the U.S. mainland, it's, I read that part, okay, um, so they're quoting this guy, and this guy is saying there are ample independent studies that show GMO is safe, and 30 national and worldwide scientific groups, such as the American Academy of Sciences, American Medical Association, and who are you going to call? The World Health Organization that have done so. Even the Pope, now I don't know where any of these studies are, okay? Even the Pope has a scientific advisory group that deems it safe. In 2013, 97 million acres of corn were planted in the U.S. and more than 90% of it was genetically modified. The companies have tested GMO plants in Hawaii for 18 years. Okay, I reread that part. Um, Oh, yeah, somebody voted for restrictions, okay? It, it, it's, it's the GMOs and it's the pesticides, okay? For more than 40 years, major seed and chemical companies have tested crop, let me see here, crop varieties, seeds, pesticides, and herbicides in Hawaii because its climate allows several crops per year. Oh, boy, they can really get in more poison in a shorter period of time. Since 1996, that work has included testing of genetically modified soybeans, canola, and rice, but mainly corn. You know, we have corn in everything, and go look. Corn's in our fuel. It's in everything. Okay, here's the companies we're looking for. Five companies. Syngenta, Monsanto, DuPont Pioneer, Dow AgriSciences, and BASF do their research on the island of Kauai, Oahu, Maui, and Molokai. The companies collectively employ more than 2,000 people on the islands, and the industry's economic impact is valued at $230 million annually. Well, I guess if you don't subtract all the diseases, right? Syngenta alone earns $4 billion on its corn vegetable and flower seeds, and $10 billion in crop protection. Headquartered in Basel, Switzerland, Syngenta has 27,000 employees worldwide and grows seeds in 90 countries. It is the only... This is a good part. It is the only company doing research and development in Hawaii that is not North America based. So that's telling us pretty much it's an American deal here, right? <laughs> Most of the companies do GMO and pesticide research on thousands of acres of former sugar plantations on the southwest side of Kauai. Syngenta has 3,000 acres there and 1,000 acres near Luhai. We can grow three crops a year. We plant two on the southwest side of the island and give it a break and induce a fallow winter and knock, and knock bugs down, Phillips it says. The cycles are planted in October and harvested in January and planted in February and harvested in May. 
It takes 10 to 12 crops to get a seed that's marketable because most projects we do don't make it. It's testing, honing. So uh, it, it can be the genetics aren't performing the way we want. It has to have the desired characteristics for a given area. If corn goes to Iowa, we don't want it to fall over in the wind. Almost all of what Syngenta does in Hawaii is research and development on corn. It also does research in Puerto Rico and in Chile and other South American countries. It develops GMO strains of varieties at its laboratories in North Carolina, and they are approved by the USDA, Food and Drug Administration, and the Environmental Protection Agency before field testing in Hawaii. Wow, okay. GMO corn started in 1996 by using a natural bacterium, which is the number one pesticide organic farmers use. I don't know why they'd use this organic farmers, but I'm a little bit confused here. Um, use of conventional pesticides recommended for control of the European corn borer has dropped by about one third since BT corn was introduced. Well, it's just all of these helpful things, isn't it? And say vitamin A is important for eye development. People get it in meat, but not in the diet exclusively made up of rice. So scientists found a way, he says, with genetic modification to put vitamin A from carrots into rice. It's called golden rice. Because they found there were parts of the world that people were going blind from the rice. Um, I don't think I have it here. I just knew about it from ages ago. Um, Despite all the industry efforts on golden rice, it hasn't been deregulated or commercialized. The chemical companies that are developing and testing these GMO plant varieties are doing so in order to enable the use of more of their signature chemicals. The process of field testing requires heavy use of pesticides and over time, as their operations have expanded and intensified, the community is feeling the human and environmental impact of that use. Voluntary reporting by the company since December shows high use of chlorociferous known to have neurological impact on children. All chemicals are applied in, in accordance with state and federal regulations, as Phillips person says. Kauai's GMO and pesticide law, the one overturned in August, required the companies to disclose when and where they spray pesticides and restricted spray and restricted sprays to certain distances from public areas. Well, I'm not going to bore you with all of this stuff, but um, I'll tell you what they did here. Um, out of all of this, okay, so they're having farming practices not being regulated, right? The state sought a solution they called a good neighbor program. If we are going to spray a pesticide anywhere near a residence, school, or hospital, we will notify them a week before. We've already been doing that since November. Other companies do it too. The law required buffer zones of 500 feet, but Sergenta hasn't farmed within 1,500 feet of any dwelling for years, they said. Only approved products are being tested. 
The company knocked on doors of more than 200 residents in YME and only 19 wanted to be notified of spray plans. Syngenta has spent money to defeat mandatory GMO labeling initiatives in California, Washington, Oregon, but it is not opposed to voluntary GMO labeling. <laughs> it is estimated that over 70 to 80% of foods Americans buy in grocery stores have a GMO component in them. Forced labeling with track and trace programs will cost the average American family 400 to $500 more in their food bill. The FDA mandates that GMO products must be equivalent in nutritional value and safe. So the nutritional value of GMO corn and non-GMO corn is the same. So you are labeling the process of how it got there, not what it is, he says. GMOs have been a target of initiatives on three islands. Well, I am not going to drag you through all these um, initiatives because, well, it's still going on, so let's not get too um, thing here. And here's just a little bit more specific information about these GMO crops. Um, Okay, um, am I eating food that come from GMO crops? It is very likely you are eating foods and food products that are made with ingredients that come from GMO crops. Many GMO crops are used to make ingredients that Americans eat, such as cornstarch, corn syrup, corn oil, soybean oil, canola oil, or granulated sugar. A few fresh fruit and vegetables are available in GMO varieties, including potatoes, summer squash, apples, papayas, and pink pineapples. Although GMOs are in a lot of the foods we eat, most of the GMO crops grown in the United States are used for animal food. To make it easier for consumers to know if the foods they eat contain GMO ingredients, um, you can go look at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, okay? Okay, what GMO crops are in the United States? Only a few types of GMO crops are grown in the United States, but some of these GMOs make up a large percentage of the crops grown, like soybean, corn, sugar, beets, canola, and cotton. In 2020, GMO soybean made up 94% of all soybean planted. GMO cotton made up 96% of all cotton planted. And 92% of corn planted was from GMO. In 2013, GMO canola made up 95% of canola planted, while GMO sugar beets made up 99% of all sugar beets harvested. Most GMO plants are used to make ingredients that are used in other food products. For example, cornstarch can be made with GMO corn and sugar can be made with GMO sugar beets. Corn is the most commonly grown crop in the United States, and most of it is GMO. Most GMO corn is created to resist insect pests or tolerate herbicides. Um, I'm not going to go through all of this because, uh, well, it's very easily found, but uh, I would take a look um, 
this whole GMO thing is supposedly to get better crops. Now, my question is this. If you have GMO products, okay, like corn and stuff, okay, and let's talk about corn. And too much corn can be responsible for the niacin thing, right? Well, they say, they're, they say that what they're doing with these GMOs is they're resupplementing things, right? But can you really resupplement something like niacin, which when we get it from nature has that antibiotic effect? Can that really be jigged up in a lab by these people? Well, you're going to have to think for yourself. I, I would <laughs> I would question anything being jigged up by these people, but I will be back later. I'm going to be um, next getting to these nuclear reactors uh, because that has to do with what they're piping into our homes with the smart meter business. So the whole thing I'm questioning here, has the U.S. diet been formulated to make people that have lower niacin levels more receptive to radiation? Question has to be asked, right? Why were Cleckley and that striker person so concerned about the diets in mental hospitals, which the diets, they, they were getting that pellagra from too much corn. So there's a lot of disconnects going on here, right? I don't believe that they can resupplement things that are taken out by nature, right? Because I don't see them as being that smart to have um, engineered some supplement that would technically really replace what niacin comes in via our diet, right? So I don't know. There's just a lot to think about. But let me get out of here, and I'll be back with these um, more about these nuclear things because that's really interesting. I found some very, very, I'm like 100% convinced that those nuclear reactors are there to supposedly give us cheaper electricity, but in fact, they're there to give them better access to the uranium, the depleted uranium that they need to, you know, for those smart meters on all of our homes. So let's explore that a little bit further. I'm kind of worn out today. So let's explore that a little bit further and um, I'll be back next with those reactors and stuff. And I think that's about it. Let me look here real quick. Yeah, I think that's about it. Um, uh, one thing I would suggest, most, at least, and this is not medical advice or to be interpreted in any way, okay? Most, most states in this country have one utility company, right? Like I only have one electricity company, one gas company, right? Each of those companies have their own smart meters, okay? I would suggest this because I'll be back with, when I get back to more of this, um, this nuclear stuff, okay? I've, I have actually identified um, the chemicals that they're piping into the smart meters. And actually, it's kind of interesting because those chemicals came out of the bug industry. Yeah, they think we're bugs, right? And they're also spraying us with bug, bug stuff through our smart meters. So, yeah, so... Um, um, because I want to talk more about the Marshall Islands and what went on there, what went on in Russia how they got all these tests, and then I'll also be putting together a timeline of when did they start talking about this stuff, right? Because these uh, nuclear things all got supposedly triggered because they thought the Russians, the um, Germans were doing it, right? So then, of course, that drug up the whole thing that started over here with all of these nuclear things. So all of it right now, to me, is very suspect, and... It appears to me they were so interested in our diet because 
they've been planning this for about a you know what the last 50 years or so so first thing they want to do is knock out the elements in our systems which would make us more susceptible right so anyway so this Rocco is about ready to drive me crazy here again so I will get closed here for now and I'll be back with all these um, reactor business stuff so anyhow do you want to say something rock you want to say something He's so intent on coming up here and bothering me, but he doesn't want to say anything. So anyway, so be safe out there, and goodbye for now. I'm going to be inserting some clips here. There's three, well, aside from Japan, there are three significant nuclear bomb places that took place. One is off of the Marshall Islands. It's where the name Bikini came from. And it's called Bikini Atoll, A-T-O-L. Atoll has to do with the um, coral and stuff in the area, A-T-O-L-L. So this first one is about the nuclear bombing of Bikini Atoll, because I'd like to give you some things to explore further on your own. And a lot of nuclear atom testing was taking place in Nevada, and then another significant place was in Russia. So let me play those clips now and give you a chance to, um, you know, just jot down these names and then explore. There's a lot of information out there. So here's the first one about the bombing of Bikini Atoll. The connection between SpongeBob SquarePants and the bombing of the Pacific Islands. Yes? No? Any Theopopals want to have a go? Okay, so back in the day, ages and ages ago, like 70 years, the Pacific Oceans were an idyllic place for fish and oysters to live and hang in. That was until the Big Bang of June 30, 1946. The place is Bikini Atoll, part of the Marshall Islands, halfway between PNG and Hawaii. The Big Bang is the first atomic weapon to be tested in Pacific waters. And while it would be awesome to say a Pacific Island developed atomic weapons other than jandals and rugby thighs, this horrific part of our history was set off by America. How is that possible, you ask? Well, America was basically given the territories of the Marshall Islands after the Second World War. And like most of the Pacific, these islands were won and lost by European nations with little to no input from indigenous peoples. The name Pikini was westernized to become Bikini, presumably because Americans couldn't pronounce Bikini with a P because it's a tough name to pronounce. Nuts. Now back to the Big Bang. The world saw how one atomic bomb changed the course of the war, so the race was on to build bigger and more destructive bombs. But where to test a bomb that could zap millions of organic beings in a flash without zapping millions of organic beings in a flash? You guessed it, Bikini Atoll. Far away from the US mainland and only a few island natives to deal with. Pikini Atoll was bombarded with more than 60 nuclear bombs, including one explosive that was a thousand times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Hiroshima. We all know that one. While other islands around the Pacific were getting titles of Best Island and Best Beach, poor Marshall Islands with its radioactive palm trees and nuclear roasted coconuts had the dubious title of the most contaminated place on Earth. The people from this area were dumped on a nearby island which didn't have enough food on it to sustain them. So doubly stink-white. To their credit, the Americans did build a massive dome on a neighboring island to contain all the nuclear waste. That dome is now leaking due to rising sea levels and poor workmanship. So let's take that credit right back. 
Fun fact. SpongeBob SquarePants lives in a pineapple under the sea at Bikini Bottom. Okay, let me see here. This next one is going to be um, about Nevada. This is just a short clip here. So this is an atomic test in Nevada from 1955. Whoops. The Nevada desert in America is the scene of the latest atomic test. International observers come by invitation to join scientists, military and civil defense authorities making a study of the test. specially chosen types of buildings with dummies inside them has been erected to study survival chances in an atomic explosion. Called Doomtown, the buildings and their contents will test the effect of the bomb at distances ranging from one to two miles. The extent to which food will be contaminated by radioactivity will also be studied along with the effect of blast on communications. Fully protected cameras concealed inside and outside the buildings will take pictures of the blast scenes. itself is contained in a device at the top of a tower 500 feet high. Tanks move into the blast area and officers are to occupy trenches only 2,600 yards from the bomb, the closest ever in a test. Night and army personnel with recording equipment wait for zero hour as others check their cameras. look online the pictures are easy to find what they did was in Nevada in 1955 and remember this is 2023 <laughs> um, they set up this whole um, town called Doomstown and um, actually you know built some of the houses with bricks some of them with wood some of them with this some of them with that to test this um, bomb going off get the idea here it's a bomb going off um, but if you look around um, look for atomic tests in Nevada okay you'll find a <laughs> a lot of atomic tests that went on in Nevada okay so this is the one in Russia and um, once you know what the key words are then you'll be able to look a little bit further on your own and this is um, Another word, another name you're looking for is polygon, P-O-L-Y-G-O-N-E. That is the area in Russia where this horrible, horrible radiation test took place. So let me play that for you right now. And then I'll likely just close off at the very end and catch you on the next one. So. Five, four, three, two, one. 
the Cold War saw a lot of nuclear weapons testing by the US, Soviet Union, UK, France, and others. The US did much of their early testing at Bikini Atoll in the South Pacific. The Soviets chose a remote part of what's now Kazakhstan. The story of Bikini Atoll is not a proud one for the US. Local residents there were shuffled inexpertly around nearby islands before the testing, and many were still exposed to dangerous levels of radiation. But as embarrassing as that episode is for the US, it's nothing compared to what happened in Kazakhstan. In 1949, the Soviet Union detonated their very first atomic bomb in an area called Semipalatinsk, known locally as the Polygon. The region was roughly the size of New Jersey, and according to one of the program's architects, it was uninhabited. As it turns out, that claim was off by about 1.5 million people. It's hard to know whether the Soviet military was simply callous in its choice of test site, or downright sinister. There are reports of villagers being instructed to step outside their homes before detonations so that the effect of radiation exposure could later be studied. Either way, for 40 years, from 1949 to 1989, the Soviets detonated nuke after nuke here, as many as 456 of them. That's so many that the explosions became almost commonplace for some villagers. Almost every day, recalled one woman, announcements on the radio at noon would say, now there is going to be a test of nuclear weapons. Everything would shake. The windows in my classroom were shattered by the shockwave from one of the blasts. All these tests laid waste to the environment. Rivers and water sources were contaminated, farmland was tainted, and the people began to suffer almost immediately. Cancer rates skyrocketed, as did mental disabilities, infertility, depression, and harrowing birth defects. All in all, around 200,000 people are believed to have suffered directly from radiation. The weapons testing finally ceased with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989, but the shadow cast by the program remains long. To this day, 1 in 20 children born in the Polygon area suffer deformities. The suicide rate is four times the national average. And then there's the fact that when the site closed, Russia essentially just walked away, leaving untold amounts of radioactive material behind. The towns in and around the Polygon were poor enough that scavenging metal from the old facilities became commonplace, further subjecting locals to radiation. The United States caught wind of this and launched a massive effort with Russia and Kazakhstan to secretly clean up the test site, a mission that wasn't finished until 2012. The moral of this story, as if it needs one, is that nuclear testing can leave a mark on a place for generations. The residents of Bikini Atoll still understand this, and Kazakhstan understands it maybe best of all. So well, in fact, that the country has helped lead the charge to ratify the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. The treaty calls for nothing less than a worldwide end to all nuclear detonations, though it won't go into effect until it's ratified by all 44 of the key nations who created it. Russia, notably, has ratified the treaty, perhaps with the memory of the Polygon fiasco still fresh. And in fact, today there are only eight holdouts. China, Egypt, Iran, Israel, India, Pakistan, North Korea, and the United States. If you like this video, please subscribe to this channel. Well, 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 I think that gives you some things to look for, so be safe out there, and goodbye for now.